Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. They're going to have to face the reality of the situation we're in. We're going to have to compromise. That might look like putting a cap on the number of vouchers. It might look like putting a, an income cap. Um, but we have to find a solution to rein in this unsustainable program. This is not ASU deciding to support Carrie Lake. This is one legal clinic at the law school deciding to support a free speech claim. They implemented this system back in February of 2021 and um, allowed these non-disclosures to go on for, for two years. And that that's just unacceptable. The winner of the night was Donald Trump by far. You know, to not get down to that level and engage in that circus, uh, that would have elevated everybody else. So it makes 100% sense of why you would avoid that debate. Of course, you know, he's a former president. The governors, as they come in, Governor Ducey, Governor Brewer, all have the prerogative to restructure, for instance, state agencies um, and commissions. And uh, what people may not know is the governor, Governor Hobson before her, Governor Ducey, is the chair of this commission. And, and it's her prerogative in this case to decide to restructure it. And that's what she did. And, and I think they've done it in a thoughtful way in terms of looking for new members. And with me to talk about the Arizona Supreme Court wading into the state's abortion debate, Carrie Lake asking to dismiss a defamation suit filed against her by Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer are more. Our Lorna Romero-Ferguson of Elevate Strategies. Good morning, Lorna. Good morning. And Democratic strategist Tony Connie. Hey, Tony. Good morning. So, Lorna, let me start with you with the state Supreme Court. Uh, had a conference this week, decided to... Uh, take on this case, basically trying to figure out which of Arizona's competing abortion laws is the law that needs to be followed. Was it a surprise that the state Supreme Court would would take this on? Absolutely not. I think everyone has been confused since Roe v. Wade was overturned about what was actually going to be the standing law in Arizona. Obviously, there was the territorial law that people have been referencing, the 15-week ban, et cetera. And so there's just been a lot of uncertainty. And so I think, you know, most people who've been following this knew that this was going to be a long legal process unless something was done by the legislature or potentially Arizona voters, which is looks like maybe a path moving forward. But there's just a lot of uncertainty when it comes to women and even when it comes to medical providers about what are, what are what's the standard of care and, and what are the rules moving forward. And so hopefully there'll be some clarity. But uh, I fear that this is just going to be a, a long, winding process of uncertainty when it comes to abortion in Arizona. Well, Tony, you mentioned the the voter initiative, which launched a week or two ago, trying to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot. So even if the court rules, that might not be the final word on this. Yeah, I don't think it'll be the final word. But you, but you're right. There needs to be clarity on this uh, just for everybody right now. You know, there's the election is still a little ways away, but voters are going to decide. And this is an issue that voters care a lot about right now. I think what's happened over the past in the abortion debate for a long time was most of the ideas about the consequences of Roe v. Wade going away were kind of theoretical. Now people are seeing actual news stories or having personal relationships with people that have been impacted by this, uh, you know, by abortion being illegal in some places. And so I think this has become a very personal vote for folks and voters are going to decide. Obviously, Lorna, this is a very, as Tony said, a very personal, emotional issue affects the lives of, of a great many people. But it also has a political impact. And we've been talking about this, as Tony referenced, you know, in 22, how the abortion issue and the end of Roe v. Wade kind of is seen as a reason why maybe some Democrats in Arizona did better than expected and maybe Democrats didn't do as badly nationwide. 
Obviously, you know, as we've discussed, there's the potential of an initiative. But does the Supreme Court taking it on and maybe elevation of this issue once again now, does that matter politically in any way? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, this is not a good issue for Republicans and, I, and Republicans know that, right? Um, because the, the the majority of the party has always stood on a pro-life stance, which is great, right? But there's a lot of variations within that. And the party has not shifted to to these variations and to the changing um, perspective of the population. You've seen some Republicans stand up saying that we need more compromise. You know, maybe we do need a, a, a 15-week ban or whatever, however many weeks when it comes to elective abortions. But it goes beyond that, right? There's so many women who um, are pregnant, want the baby, and unfortunately there's a circumstance where the viability isn't there, right? And so what happens in those situations? And for some reason, that doesn't really get talked about much when it comes to Republicans. And so they really just need to start talking about contraception, women issues in general, and really listen to the voters, you know, and get their perspective and kind of change this a little bit. But I mean, for Republicans, this isn't an issue that they want to lead on, right? They don't want this to be the top the topic for the 2024 election, but they need to figure out what their message is to voters so it's not something that's a potential loser for them. So at the risk of asking what might be a dumb question, if Republicans know this is not a great issue for them, but also know that it's an issue for a lot of Americans, why can't they figure out how better to talk about it? I mean, it goes back to the divide in the party, right? Um, And we talk about this in a number of different instances. You still have Republicans that are litigating the 2020 election, right? Um, And so there's some Republicans that refuse to shift their perspective when it comes to the life issue, right? They're pro-life, 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 the end, right? There's another segment of the party where they do see um, how important it is to broaden the conversation and to shift their perspective a little bit, right? You may personally be pro-life, but is that incumbent on you to put your beliefs on somebody Mm. else, right? That's another underlying issue. So I do think you see some variation. And you saw some of that you know, with Nikki Haley at the Republican debate earlier sure. this week, she talked about broadening the, the conversation, making contraception more easily and readily available, things that Republicans typically haven't talked about. So I think you you, you will see some Republicans shift in that direction. But there is a staunch group that does not want to have the conversation whatsoever and doesn't think abortion should be legal in any situation. Tony, on a very practical level, I wonder if the Supreme Court saying it's going to take on this case and then hearing arguments probably later this year and then issuing a ruling sometime after that, does that help the effort to gather signatures to put this constitutional amendment on the ballot, having it sort of in the news cycle, you know, one after another like that? I think it might help with fundraising more than it'll help with voters being aware enough when they're approached about okay. signing, uh, you know, signing a petition. Um, because I, it's just with abortion, so many issues in politics when we're talking about, uh, you know, a campaign, you have to educate voters. You have to you have to convince them this is important. You have to tell them what this is about. But with abortion, most people feel like they know everything they need to know about it. And so I so I. I, you know, in the course of the presidential campaign, it's going to be a major issue. I think that this is going to be top of mind for a lot of voters no matter what. And so I, I don't particularly see the case, you know, increasing that 
more because it's already so high. Okay. Lorna, you mentioned how uh, some, especially Republicans, are still litigating past elections. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Carrie Lake, who I think falls into that category. We can safely put her there. (laughs) Uh, She is trying to dismiss a defamation lawsuit against her that was filed by uh, Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer. Uh, He, of course, is the subject, has been the subject of a lot of her complaints about why the election in her mind was not done fairly. And she's using a, a, a kind of an interesting approach or a legal approach, taking a First Amendment, uh, you know, free speech uh, claim to this, understanding I am not a lawyer here. Um, I don't think you guys are, are lawyers either. Nope. So with that out there, I'm curious what you make of, of this approach she's taking and the fact that she's trying to get this dismissed at all. I, I mean, it's really not surprising, right? Um, Carrie Lake is a firebrand, you know, whether that be on Twitter or in person on television. And, and she speaks her mind, right? And unfortunately, um, words matter. And some of the language that she has chosen to use has put Stephen Richer in a situation where him and his family have received threats and their security is at risk, right? And at what point does free speech turn into dangerous speech, right? And I think that's the underlying issue and conversation here. Um, and, and and of course, she was going to request that it be dismissed and whatnot. But I, I think this is a, a fundamental conversation about when is it protected speech and when is it just dangerous, right? And And that's my fear just beyond this, you know, Carrie Lake versus Stephen Richer situation, like that's we see this so much in politics now where the conversation has just devolved into dangerous rhetoric um, and words matter. And I just I am over this type of behavior and I just can't wait until we get leadership on both parties. Right. I think there's people to blame on both sides that kind of elevate the conversation more back to the issues that matter in policies versus juvenile behavior and dangerous language. Well, Tony, do you think the outcome of this case in any way affects how politicians, candidates, others sort of in the public world talk to each other? I mean, it seems like it hasn't worked on on some people yet. I mean, the problem is, is that there is an incentive in a lot of ways for Carrie Lake to continue to say these kinds of things because it's a way that she's raising money. And so fighting back against this lawsuit is a way that she's raising money. And so there's this there's this financial incentive that is driving this that somehow needs to be severed. And I think that's part of the reason why Richer filed this lawsuit is because if you can, you know, punish her financially, maybe that will be a thing that stops it. Because I think the legality of it aside, all that stuff about the First Amendment, I think it's just wrong what she's done. It's wrong and it's dangerous and it's put his his family in jeopardy. And it's obvious that many of the things she's saying are just lies to make a small segment of the Republican Party happy. And so I, I don't know if it's going to solve. I don't know if he's going to if he's going to win the case. But I do think that that financial incentive is the thing that has to be severed somehow. Lorna, there's a great expectation that Lake will enter the U.S. Senate race at some point. There's been reporting maybe next month or the, or the following month. Mm-hmm. Does how does this case and however it ends up playing out, how does that affect her Senate campaign, if at all, do you think? I- I don't think it's going to affect her Senate campaign. I mean, it, she's involved in so many lawsuits at this point. Um, it, she has her following. She's continued her Carrie Lake brand. She's I think we all know we've we've seen this story before how she intends to run her potential future race. I don't think this specific lawsuit is going to have any impact. And, and Tony's 100 percent correct. I mean, it's it's a fundraising opportunity. I'm being attacked. I'm protecting your First Amendment rights. I'm doing this, that and the other. We see this with a lot of um, far right 
Republican fundraising attempts, especially those who um, are still, you know, ch- you know, fighting against the 2020 and 2022 elections. Uh, and so, yeah, it's not really going to impact her. She's going to forge ahead and continue to be Carrie Lake. Except for maybe in the fundraising realm, bro. I mean, in theory, if you're running a race, I, mean, I don't think anybody's thinking she's not going to have the resources she needs, but every little bit helps, right? Oh, I mean, yes, every dollar counts, but uh, she is from the traditional maybe donors that potentially, you know, that supported her in 2022 that maybe have kind of fallen off. I think she's probably picked up more folks on the national side by raising her profile and continuing to tie herself to Trump. Um, so I, I don't think necessarily that will be a fundraising disadvantage for her. Tony, let me start with you about uh, what's uh, something in the legislature called a 1487 complaint, kind of deep in the legislative weeds here. But basically, it's a bill that became law that allows state lawmakers to ask the attorney general to investigate whether a city has an ordinance that is breaking state law. And if uh, it's found that they are, there's all sorts of penalties that uh, go along for that city. A pair of Republicans in the House have asked uh, Attorney General Chris Mays to look into to an ordinance in Phoenix that basically donates seized guns or used guns to Ukraine. And they are saying, well, this goes against state law. I'm curious, you know, given sort of where we are both on the gun issue and on the Ukraine issue in this country, like, what do you make of this? I, it's 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 not surprised. I, I don't know. I, I, I like I'm not surprised <laughs> that this 1487 complaint was filed. It's a state interference. It's, it's, it's a law that allows a single state legislator to essentially threaten a political subdivision, a city or a county, with having all of their state shared revenue taken away. That's the threat. And so if this complaint, if the attorney general finds that this is a violation of state law, that's $680 million a year that the city would lose. And so that's so it's it, so it's a, it's a huge issue. I think that the, the, the city did its homework and they're confident that this is a legal transfer. Um, you know, one of the things that the that the letter that the legislators put together referenced was in Tucson when they were, the, you know, there was a 1487 complaint about them destroying right, weapons. Right. And, you know, and the city draws a distinction there. You know, they've even pointed out that something similar was happening in the Ducey administration before. And so I, I think this is going to put the attorney general in an interesting position where she's going to have to come out and 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 give a, a fair ruling uh, ab- about this. And, um, you know, and I don't know if this will have legs outside of our little pocket of people, yeah. but it certainly is a big deal for the city that this complaint was filed. It seems like kind of an interesting spot, as Tony said, for Chris Mays to, to be put in, um, you know, because there's a lot of different ways that, that you can look at this particular issue. Yeah, definitely. And I think she should get used to just 1487 complaints because they happen pretty often from the Arizona legislature. But I... I what what makes this a little interesting to me is it's so it's so in the weeds, right? This is so inside baseball. I don't think it's going to have larger ramifications, but I'm curious to see what the legislation is going to be introduced next year to clarify it, right? I mean, that's typically what happens with these 1487 complaints is, you know, they think that a political subdivision has violated state law. If there's some uh, unclarity based off of the attorney general's decision, then you'll see a bill introduced. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think what the city of Phoenix done is obviously as, as egregious of what Tucson did about destroying weapons. I, I understood that complaint. 
transferring them to the Ukraine. Ukraine, I think, is an interesting selection from the city of Phoenix. Um, but, I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to see what Attorney General Mays says. But, um, again, I just don't think this is going to go too far in the general public. Got it. All right. So I assume that both of you watched with great interest uh, this week the first uh, GOP presidential debate uh, in Milwaukee. Um, Lauren, I'll start with you. Um, President Trump, former President Trump, was not there, but he was still kind of there, right? Oh, yeah. He had a presence without having to physically be on the stage. I mean, just hearing the crowd cheer and boo based off of any time his name was mentioned in any kind of you know positive or negative way just goes to show that he still has support amongst the party. And that room was filled with, you know, supporters, you know, theoretically of the folks on stage. Right. Um, he, he won that debate by not being there. He didn't have to get put on the spot. Everyone else had to be put on the spot answering questions about if you would support President Trump or if you think Vice President Pence did the right decision on January 6th and uh, was a little surprised that some of those people didn't rehearse their responses a little bit better. I mean, I think we all knew they were going to be asked that at some point during their campaign. So I think that's probably the biggest takeaway was the lack of preparation from some from some of these candidates. But I mean, as much as you want to criticize him not being on stage, it was probably the best decision that he made. Tony, President Trump did uh, some what what he calls counter programming. He was on uh, with Tucker Carlson on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> President Biden also tried to do a little bit of counter programming there. Like when you look at all of the various options, in addition to like, you know, you can just watch Ted Lasso or something during the during the debate if you want to. Like how much impact do you think these kinds of events, be it the debate or the other kinds of made for TV events candidates might be doing? How much will that resonate with voters, do you think, going forward? I think there's two audiences. There's the sort of donor base audience, which is engaged. And so debates are important. You raise a lot of money. If you have a good line, maybe you are a candidate who doesn't have any money and you're going you're gonna to get, get a big rush of, of funds. But when it comes to voters, the debate itself isn't important. What ends up being important these days are clips that come out mm. and get thrown all over the Internet. And if you haven't seen Ron DeSantis answer a question and then in his head, remind himself he's supposed to smile and do the most awkward, uncomfortable smile <laughs> I've ever seen anybody give, then you've you got to go look for it because it's great. But that's the kind of thing that's like circulating around the Internet. And so, um, you know, and no real news was made, I don't think, outside of outside of that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's going to you know, so that's really the only place where there's going to be an impact. But, you know, uh, Trump won the debate because even though I, I do think it's funny to see the mental gymnastics of a lot of the Republican uh, people in our state who said that the, the governor not debating was a sign that she should be disqualified and not be able to be in office. And now they're touting that Trump doesn't need a debate. But, uh, you know, I think that it, he remains in a very strong position after that debate. All right. So, guys, just a few minutes left. I want to ask you about a story that that came out late last week uh, after our, our Friday news camp, and that is that uh, Laura Pastor, Phoenix City Council member, has suspended her campaign for Congress. She's running for the seat currently held by Ruben Gallego, who's, of course, running for the U.S. Senate, it was also held for what seems like forever by her dad, Ed Pastor. Tony, were you surprised that that she decided to to call it quits? No, I, I wasn't surprised. I thought that of the candidates, she was the one that I saw had the most difficult path forward to a win. Uh, I was surprised that he came out about so soon. I think one of the challenges here is that, uh, you know, it's a matter of public record that during redistricting, she was able to get that district redrawn to fit her, you know, what she thought would help her. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I, I know that that had an impact of a lot of the like institutional type unions and groups that may or may not have been willing to support her. And that kind of froze her out a little bit. And so I'm, I'm not I'm not surprised at all. Um, it was a little bit earlier than I thought, but I didn't think she had a chance to win. Lorna, because we like asking people to wade into the internal politics of the party that they are not affiliated My with. My favorite. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm curious how you see this affecting the rest of that primary. Still a, a few other candidates that are in there. This is obviously a very safe Democratic seat. So really, mm-hmm. the primary is where the action's at. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, the, the winner will be selected in the primary. Uh, I... It, Again, it's an open seat, and we've seen this on both sides of the aisle. When there's an open seat in a safe district, everybody and their mother jumps into the race, right? And this is no different. Um, I, I don't think it was ever going to be a slam dunk for her by any means. I, I agree with you that some people were surprised that given the last name that she decided to to bow out so early. Uh, but when you when you run for Congress, it's a lot different than running for the city council mm-hmm. or the Arizona legislature. Yeah. It's a completely different strategy, and your infrastructure has to be completely different, right? And so I think a lot of people jump in with the assumption that their supporters from their city council race or their legislative race will transfer or transition over, and that's not necessarily true. Uh, fundraising is a lot harder. And uh, honestly, sometimes the people who supported you for city council or legislature might not be as interested in that congressional seat, might not actually be something that uh, is, is a priority for them. And so that's probably what she ran into. But um, it'll be an interesting primary to see how these people decide to run and if it's going to be a far progressive that comes out or a little bit more of a moderate Democrat um, and, and how this unfolds in the, the coming months. Yeah, Tony, in the last 45 seconds or so, how, how do you see the state of that primary now with Pastor no longer a part of it? Well, it, it, the, I think that um, it's become much more of a two-person race between uh, City Councilman Yasmin Ansari and uh, and Raquel Turan, the former uh, Democratic uh, minority leader. And they're both very strong candidates. They both are doing well with fundraising. And this is going to be a campaign that I think will be decided at the doors, essentially, mm. and, and, and not just the door knocking, but just figuratively at, at kitchen tables. I think that the candidate that is able to um, you know, that's trusted the most in that in that district. It's going to be a low turnout election is the candidate that's going to win. And it's going to be I think it will be I think it will be close. Um, and uh, it's very interesting. And, and you know, you you want to win a race like that because it could be a seat for life. That's basically. Right. And yeah. so, um, you know, I'm anxiously looking forward to to that campaign. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is Democratic strategist Tony Connie. I'm also joined by Lorna Romero Ferguson of Elevate, Elevate Strategies. Thanks to you both for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.